Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 13th, 2020, and this is episode 2711 of the Survival Podcast. And we've got a good one for you today on this Thursday, 24 bulletproof plants for the backyard hunter-gatherer. Last night, uh, four of the geese and the gaggle of geese that are part of the Unloose the Goose project got together. We did a podcast. We did a live stream on uh, on YouTube. And we also have, of course, the podcast goes out just like this one does in all the podcast networks. We talked about the food system, and it kind of got me into this, this, this vein. And the way we're doing things over there is more like a forum. And so you can only go so deep into any given subject or any given piece uh, in that format. We're trying to get the kind of high-level understanding of the problem and the basic format of the solution into as many minds as possible and create community uh, there. So I wanted to take a deeper dive on the subject today of producing your own food. So what I have for you again today is 24 bulletproof plants for the backyard hunter-gatherer. And that's how I'm coming at this one today. Instead of the classic gardener, more what I've done uh, on my property. And, and kind of how I got here, you know, I, I grew up being taught to do a lot of the things that I, I talk about on the show. Um, I'm not like a lot of folks, I think, in America today who kind of grew up without this in their background. Uh, especially people a little bit younger than me. Really, I, I bet you 90% or more grew up never learning how to hunt, to fish, uh, to forage, to grow your own food, uh, to, to understand where your food even comes from. And, and there's this huge resurgence in desire for people to learn this. It's why shows like mine have become successful. It's why so many YouTube channels have become successful. And I think the Internet's been a big piece of it because not only does, does the desire exist, but the ability to do something with the desire is there. And it's simple. There's, you know, what's they, One of the lessons of history is how much was lost with the, with the Library of Alexandria. And as much knowledge in, in human history was lost with that, uh, it, it, it cannot hold a candle to what's freely available to anybody today with an iPhone or a computer. The knowledge is available. So people are trying to come back into this. And so it, depending on how you get here, I think, depends a lot on how you think. But I think a lot of people, whether you were brought up with this or not, um, come at it initially the same way that I did because of being taught it. And it's the farmer approach. When I think about my grandfather's garden that I took care of, which was about a good quarter acre of garden, um, which is a big garden, it really is, it was very much like a farm. There was a row for everything and everything in a row. All the rows were straight. I would go every spring to redig the beds, which today seems so pointless, what we could have done to avoid that. <laughs> but, you know, you, you, you do what you're taught as a kid. And I used this thing called an edger, which basically kind of looked like a straight hoe. And I would take a line and drive a peg in the ground and then make it straight. And then I would cut all the sod out. <clears throat> and I would double dig from one end to the other. And then we would plant them. And we would maintain them and weed them until the fall came. And there would be a row for tomatoes and a row for potatoes and a row for cucumbers and a row for broccoli. Like the row for broccoli really was half, it was like two, two plant rows. 
And so half was broccoli, half was cauliflower. Then there's a row for beans and a row for cucumbers and, you know, eight rows of corn and, 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 and on and on it went. And it was laid out very square and it was squared to the road and it was squared to the house and everything worked. It was a beautiful garden spot. There was nothing wrong with it. And the soils in Pennsylvania were amazing and everything worked. And the, the, the bounty that came out of it was massive. So I get down here to Texas. And I put in some beds, and I, I know right away to go to raised beds, you know. So I do that. But in straight rows, lined up with the fence, lined up with the house. And um, I find really quickly that the Zone 6 climate of Pennsylvania with mild summers and slightly acidic soils and great rainfall didn't exist here. I knew it didn't exist here, but I didn't know how big a difference it would, it would make. I was sitting here with these alkaline soils. And really, really hot weather. And the hottest time of the year would be from July to September. And that would be when it would almost be a guaranteed drought. There would be no rain. If you got one good rainfall during that period, you were lucky. And I would put plants in the ground in early spring that did really well all season for my grandfather, like broccoli. And then they would bolt and be ruined by May. And I quickly realized a lot of things didn't work, and I found permaculture, and I started trying lots of different methods and lots of different systems. And it led me to what I do today, which is really much like having a little hunter-gatherer space in my backyard. And I think this can be done on a big property like mine or even a you know, quarter-acre suburban lot, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. With that in mind, our, our quote of the day is from a guy named Neil Stevenson, and he's kind of a, a fiction writer. Just leave it at that, modern fiction writer. But I found a really great quote by him. It's rather long for a quote of the day, but I really, really like it. He said, We are not hunter-gatherers anymore. We are living like patients in the intensive care unit of a hospital. What keeps us alive isn't bravery or athleticism or any of those other skills that were valuable to, in a caveman society. Get his name is Neil Stevenson. And I agree. And I, I, I think that there's a real danger in that. There is, there's a real danger in that because it's, it's what the theme I've been on lately. It's us being domesticated. If you think about the way humans lived for the majority of times, time that there's been humans on the planet, a person could take a walk and feed themselves. A person who needed to kill an animal understood whether it was a trap, whether it was a way of building a spear and an atlatl, or a bow, or even in more modern times, a gun of a sort. But men knew how to feed themselves and their families, and so did women. And if you had to go somewhere and it was a few miles, you just went there. You walked. And we just... Don't work that way anymore. And that's not all that. I, I, I have, I'm the guy that I'm not a primitivist from the standpoint of I don't want to give up a lot of what we have in modern society. But I don't want it to surplant the basic innate meaning of what it is to be a human. And being able to take a walk and feed yourself is innately human. It is what we were meant to be and what we were meant to do. And if you think about the way we are physically designed... It is the thing that we are most innately designed to be able to do. To take a walk, to use our senses, our sight, our smell, our touch, 
and our ability that, that very few animals seem to have to plan ahead, to know blackberries grow here at this time of year. Not, oh, I'm driven by some primal instinct to go forage and look, there's a blackberry. To be able to look at that blackberry on the side of a footpath and look at each side of the path and realize the berries just always grow better on one side of the path and figure out, is it because it gets more sun? Is it because it gets less sun? Or is it just because there's a downhill grade and there's this moss growing here and it's holding more moisture into the ground? And if we were to do something to make that happen to the other side, might we have better berries on both sides of the road every year? That's innately human. It's what we are designed for. It's the first thing that once you get a person disconnected from this programming that we're part of in society today and put them into the wild and teach them how things work, the first thing they do when they see something that's edible is say, how can I improve that or always find it or make sure I can get back here? What can I do to make sure this thing doesn't go away? Those were <clears throat> the skills <clears throat> that our caveman society had as well. Neil here is pointing to the athleticism and the bravery. But that only does so much for you. You know, it's not like... We have some sort of romanticized idea about what our hunter-gatherer ancestors were doing. Like they were jumping across freaking gaps and cliffs every day or something like that. Humans, when we're not dumbed down, are intelligent. The most intelligent life form on the planet that we know of anyway. I mean... Maybe dolphins or whales have an intelligence we don't understand, but in general, humans are more intelligent. Nobody else is building skyscrapers and airplanes. <clears throat> Think about that. I mean, to challenge that humans are not the most intelligent life form that we know of, until you show me somebody building a spaceship, I'm sorry, you're wrong. They are. So at a time when a compound fracture didn't mean surgery and a stay in a hospital, it meant death, We avoided risks. We didn't take unnecessary risks. We learned swiftly that stupid got you killed. A lot easier than today. There's all kinds of stupid things you can do today that they can patch you up and bolt you back together. Not so long ago, there were certain injuries that today are they're bad, but they don't hardly ever result in death. And a couple hundred years ago and back, it was almost a death sentence. For all the fear of COVID, people get pneumonia and live today. A couple hundred years ago, pneumonia itself was probably, for more than half of the people that got pneumonia, death sentence. So this idea that we have like these guys are running around pushing logs or boulders every day or something is foolish. The hunter-gatherer lifestyle was one of mostly leisure. And war was never sustainable. When you live in small groups of a couple dozen to a couple hundred... If you go to war with another clan, it's not long before everybody lost somebody they loved. It's not long before maybe one side's completely wiped out. There's no large group of people that live over there that you can send to do your fighting for you. Hunter-gatherer society was the, the most human humans have ever been. And today I want to talk to you about ways that we can recapture that a little bit. Before I do, let me just remind you, if you like the show and the work that I do, consider becoming a member. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, fill out a form, sign up, spend a few bucks, and get your money back from the discounts. Now, let's jump into my method in a nutshell and how it came to be. Like I said, I, I got here to Texas, and I tried to basically emulate what my grandfather taught me. 
And it just it just really didn't work. And so as I started experimenting with, okay, how do wicking beds work? What's a food forest like? How do swales work? You know, aquaponics, let's let's play with that. Hydroponics, let's play with that. Trellis gardening, let's play with that. Sheet mulching, let's play with that. Trees, let's plant lots of them. Bushes, let's plant lots of them. Learning to uh, to encourage wild plants on your property. Yeah, let's let's do that. Let's play with that. Let's let's go out in this park and find you know this really hardy uh, lambs quarter variety and let's plant it on our property and see how it works. To the point where the lambs quarter that grows on my property today, and I've been on this property seven years, is from seed that I took from that park I was talking about there, ha, huh, fourteen years ago. And I'm still producing. In fact, I don't do anything anymore. It just grows here. And I just know that that's the original seed source. When I first moved into this property, there was no lamb's quarter on it. And I started planting the hell out of the seed. And now I have plenty of lamb's quarter that grows back every year on its own. And it's really, really hardy. It handles drought better than, than typical lamb's quarter because I took it in a time of drought when it was surviving where no one was taking care of it. And it actually was right at the edge of surviving. I actually watered it. I used to fish this little park, and every time I fished there, I'd take a bucket and I manually watered it to get it through this really bad drought season because it was a really bad drought that year. I'm talking cracked soil. Like, you can look down and see no bottom. Like, the earth has opened and said, please give me water. And I knew if it had made it that long that this would be, you know, even um, lamb's quarter is tough, but this would be, like, really tough. So I, I've... I've you know, I've gotten that to naturalize on my property. I've got a lot of things to naturalize on my property. I have parsley that grows every year. It's not growing right now, but it'll be back next year because it was here the year before and the year before and the year before. And as I did this and I stopped being married to my garden beds, it wasn't that I stopped putting gardens in and, and that I stopped taking care of them. I stopped being kind of wedded to the fact that that's where my food had to be. And what started happening is all these little systems began to get interconnected with pathways because you design it that way when you do permaculture. And I started realizing like my food system was not just distributed instead of centralized because it was on my property. It was actually distributed throughout the property. And my method in a nutshell now is when I, when I start growing anything in a new place, I throw a bunch of shit in there. And then whatever shows up and does well, then that spot grows that thing. I, I, I don't fight it anymore. If I plant peppers in a place and the peppers all do crappy, and it doesn't make any sense because I'm using the same fertility, the same soil, it seems about right. But if the peppers just do crappy there, I got plenty of other places that grow peppers. And if, if you know, if Wolzantle, which we're going to talk about in a bit, grows really great there, then... That place grows well as not like. If sweet potato goes, grows there, then grows sweet potato. Cucumbers grow there, it grows whatever. If it tomatillos, whatever grows well in that place that's useful, that's what that place grows. I have one little wicking bed that grows the hell out of chives. Nothing else seems to really want to do well other than groundnut there. You know what? It grows chives and groundnut. That's fine. That's, that is what it is. Um, I love to grow red vein sorrel. It's not one of the crops I'm going to give you today, but I love red vein sorrel. You know what it hates? My summers. I have a great big 100-gallon wicking bed in it, and it looks like crap right now. You know what I do? Nothing. 
just make sure it doesn't die, keep it watered, and when we get into the cooler weather, I'll go in there with a scythe or a rice knife or something, and I'll cut it all flush to the ground, and when it grows back, it'll be beautiful again. It'll be beautiful all through my winter, into my spring, and I just don't worry about it in the heat of the summer. My peppers do amazing right now, so I eat a lot of peppers right now. Sweet peppers, hot peppers, you name it. This is pepper season. The eggplant's doing okay. Was really doing great for two, two, three months. For two or three months, we were eating eggplants that came out of our ears. As it starts to be a little bit hot even for eggplant, eh, we eat peppers. And it's just, it, I, I call it the sheer joy of quitting something that you need to quit. It, it's so freeing to stop trying to worry about how can I grow tomatoes through all the way to fall and just go, tomatoes get blight here. They get blight here in July. So plant them as early as you can. Grow them for as long as you can. When they start to get really bad blight and you know they're going to die, cut all your green tomatoes off, set them on your garden bed, prune back the vines to let something else take over. It's so simple. It's so freeing. I'm a full believer in quitting something that needs to be quitted. And I, I think it has a joy to it. If something is really making you miserable and you don't have to do it, stop. You know, and I, people say, well, what about exercise? Well, no, don't stop exercising. But maybe if some sort of exercise is making you miserable, find another one. So I'm not saying quit growing food. Quit growing the food that hates you to grow where you are. The advantage of this system is that there's something to eat everywhere all the time. Or if you're in a, a really cold climate where that's not going to be the case, okay. Then you just don't work hard when there's no reason to. We, we learn that lesson of our hunter-gatherer ancestors, and we need to broaden our forage. So my goal is to make my backyard forageable as much of the year as possible. But if I find a local resource where I can you know, go and forage without being arrested or shot at, I'm going to use that. There's, there's a lot of places around here in Texas, pecans just, they're a native tree here. They grow on their own. And a lot of places plant them. And there are places that if you can't grow a pecan tree, it doesn't matter if you want pecans. Once you learn where a few places are and the time of year pecans drop, you can just go pick up all the pecans you want. Sometimes you'll be driving down a road here somewhere and you'll see pecans planted on the side of roads. And there'll be 20, 30 people out picking up pecans. I'm sure if you stop, they're not going to say, hey, these are our pecans, asshole, get out. I mean, you see what I'm saying? So we want to do this in the backyard, and we want to do this elsewhere. We want to live like our ancestors, at least a little bit. Because remember, I have been big on this concept of feral humans. We need to behave like the natural beings we are. Somebody got really upset when I did this show on feral humans. I said, humans who behave like animals are no better than animals. Okay, I don't know that if that if that's really a negative. I, I'm I don't think I'm better than a duck, as far as a, a thing that exists. I think there's things that I do much better than a duck, but I can't fly, and they can. My ducks don't murder other ducks. The only thing that they kill are insects, and that's part of their natural diet. They don't go out and terrorize little children when they come over here. I guess geese do that. But in the goose's mind, it's just protecting its territory. It's defending the place that it lives. What's wrong with that? 
Even the lion that kills the wildebeest, isn't that its purpose? Isn't that its place? What makes you better than a lion or a, 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 an elephant? It's very rare that animals on this planet go out and specifically target and kill humans. We kill more humans than, than all the animals combined. Humans are more killers of humans than anything else on the planet. We kill ourselves constantly with bad nutrition. We kill each other over stupid shit. There's been wars in our past that were fought over salt and pepper. Men took a sword and stabbed other men to death with it, leaving their families without a father to protect a trade route to trade salt and pepper. And that's civilized. That was civilization that did that. It wasn't hunter-gatherer societies that did that. I think that there is nothing more natural than being, at least in some part, a hunter-gatherer. I think that when humans stop behaving like what they innately are, then bad things happen. It's domestic animals probably... Domesticated animals probably kill more people every year than wild animals. Partly because humans are more uh, close to them. But domesticated animals behave in a way that's not consistent with their wild ancestry. Horses are not supposed to be led around with a, you know, a bit in their mouth by a human that they could stomp to death if they wanted to. I'm not saying we shouldn't do domestication of horses. I'm saying that's not what the horse was designed to be in its original incarnation. Go try to do that shit with a zebra on the plains, which is not much different than your, your horse, really. It will kill you quickly. But it won't come kill you. It won't come seek you out. It's only when we take the animal out of its... I'm going long there, but I mean, just... I want you to be thinking this way as we go through today with what you can do with these plants. So my first plant on the list today that I think everybody should consider growing is called Wazantle. And I've talked about this a lot lately. It's a, it's a relative of lamb's quarter, um, but it's different than lamb's quarter. It tastes better, in my opinion. It's a goosefoot uh, family. It's a chinopodium species. Um, it's native to Mexico. It grows lower than your typical lamb's quarter. It gets these huge, bushy seed heads on it. When the seed heads are young, they're delicious. Like a, They're kind of like a broccoli mint is the only way I can describe it. And it's, it's not really that, but it's the closest thing I can get to for you. They don't bolt in the heat the way that broccoli does, so it's something you can use. Uh, they're, they're good sautéed or whatever, those, those seed heads. And, like, the most popular way to make them is, like, battered and fried. And I've seen them even made into, like, an empanada-type thing or an enchilada-type thing. Uh, obviously, coming from native to Mexico, there's going to be a lot of that type of cooking that utilizes them. But that's only one thing this plant does. When it's young, the leaves are like a spinach, just like lamb's quarter, except I think it tastes better. And they have a natural saltiness to them. At least the stuff I grow here seems to to me. And if you let it fully grow, it's also known as hairy amaranth, and the grain can be harvested for a protein yield. So you've got one plant that's a, it's a, it's a, a, a green vegetable, a more of a side veggie, if you want to think about it that way, and a protein source. And by the way, all the members of the goosefoot, foot family, quinoa, amaranth, and all, they are the most complete vegetarian proteins that we have on the planet. They're not the easiest thing to get a big yield out of because it's very, very small seed, but it's a very complete protein. I, I'm not going to say that, that Hosantle uh, is a complete protein. Some, some plants in that world are, and they're the only ones that are. So that means you don't have to add another plant protein to get a complete 
uh, yield of all the essential amino acids, the ones your body can't fabricate themselves, you have to eat in your diet or you become deficient. But if it is deficient in any, it's like one. They're very close to a complete protein. Quinoa is a complete vegetarian protein. I don't recommend you get your protein requirements from vegetarian sources, but um, there is something to be said from being able to if you have to. This plant is, like its cousin, uh, lamb's quarter, a weed. This is not a domesticated plant. This has been selected from the wild. It has not been domesticated. It will naturalize, meaning if you if you get it to produce enough to get enough seed stock on your land, it will just grow. All by itself. If you let one go to full seed in a season, you'll have more seed than you know what to do with it. You'll be giving it away. You'll be throwing it in, in, in fields to get it to grow. And it will grow just about anywhere. About the only thing that can kill it is full-on drought where it gets no moisture whatsoever. Grasshoppers do not bother it. Diseases don't bother it. It's, it's, it's a honey badger. These are all honey badger plants, most of them anyway. Next today is mints. And when I say mint, I mean all of them. Peppermint, spearmint... Uh, and then the mints, the lesser mints, the ones that we don't think of as mints, but they are mints. Bee balm, lemon balm, all of those plants. That should be something everybody grows. There's so much utility. It is good for teas. It is good for flavorings. It, all, of the, all of them are. Um, they are medicinals when used properly. They grow like crazy. They propagate like crazy. If you can't propagate mint, you can't propagate. Like you need, you, it, that's the plant. That's like one of the plants to start with when you learn to propagate plants from cuttings. If you can't propagate mint, you need to figure out what. I, I don't know if you're putting acid or ketchup in the in the jar you're trying to root with. Like you should be able to root mints easily. Uh, plants like lemon balm though have multiple functionality. If you have an issue with mosquitoes being a problem on your property, in addition to the the uh, the product that I recommend. Um, the thermosel product for like your porch and all. The, the weakness of the thermosel is when you're walking around and you're disturbing what it emits, that's when you'll get bit. It's really a good thing to use in a place that you're not really going far away from. Um, but if you take just a big handful of lemon balm and rub it on your arms and your neck and the back, it smells beautiful, but it's got just enough citronella in it that it, it works as a very good natural insecticide. So it has that functionality. All of the mints, when they're allowed to flower, are just massively wonderful for bringing in pollinating insects, predatory wasps, so that helps your other plants. Um, and there's all little niches and nooks that you can plant this stuff in as long as it, get, it needs moisture and it grows really well in partial shade. All of them do. Bee balm gets these big, beautiful flowers on them and brings in tons of beneficial insects. And it makes a tea that's almost velvet-like in texture. It's actually known as wild bergamot. Bergamot's an orange, a citrus from Italy. And if you've ever heard of Earl Grey tea, if you've ever tried it, it has this very velvet-like consistency to it. It's, it's something like it's the only thing that you ever drink that has that consistency. Well, there's one more thing you can do it with. Other than actual bergamot orange oil, you can do it with wild bergamot or bivalm. And mixed with another mint, or mixed, like my favorite tea, one of my favorite teas, mint, uh, peppermint, lemon balm, and bee balm together. It's, it's really amazing. And it's good as a hot tea, it's good as an iced tea, and you basically can grow this. And think about how that can impact your life from a standpoint of, I love my coffee. I buy coffee from all three of our supporting vendors. 
I will always start my day, most days anyway, with a couple cups of coffee. But coffee's expensive. Tea's free if you grow it right. And mints are a great way to do that. Just so much you can do with mint. Got to be on there. My next one is, and this is very, very drought tolerant. In fact, you can the n number one way you can kill it is overwater it. With the caveat that no plant is 100% drought resistant. But rosemary. Rosemary is an amazing herb. And you talk about a honey badger. It is a, it is a mean little plant. It just doesn't take shit from it. Nothing eats it. I've never seen one get a disease. I've had, you know... A, a, a helper not understand what they're looking at and basically cut it to the ground and it grows back. It's great for flavoring meats and things like that. It actually makes a pretty good infusion for like a, like a, a chilled water. It's really like a tea, but I, I wouldn't want something overly rosemaried like that, but like one sprig in like a, a water bottle. It, it makes a really refreshing drink. Um, it's easy to store It's one of the most amazing things you can do for yourself when you make a steak is take like a big sprig of rosemary and a big sprig of thyme and a big sprig of oregano and make like a little paintbrush out of it. And when you're done cooking the steak, throw a little bit of butter in the pan, deglaze the steak stickies and the butter, and then take that herb mop and kind of use that and then brush your steak with that. In fact, the best thing you do is do that and brush the board with it, lay the steak on it, and then brush the top of the steak, and then lay the, the, the herbs across it. it you'll be, it'll blow you away the flavoring that gets into that steak from just that little treatment at the end. And, you know, winter's coming soon, believe it or not, even though it's like the dog days of summer right now, there's nothing more that I want to make sure I always include in my slow-roasted red meats, like uh, deer shanks or a pot roast. Then got to have rosemary. Rosemary and potatoes, amazing for Thanksgiving. That's one. I don't eat a lot of potatoes, but I do eat some roasted potatoes at Thanksgiving. Rosemary's got to be on them. Rosemary, rosemary, rosemary. Next up, daikon radish. Daikon radish is like so utilitarian, and so many people don't grow it. So Nick Ferguson put it this way. He said, what would, what would you pay somebody to come to your garden in the fall when you're done gardening for the year and get post hole diggers and dig Every six inches, a hole, a foot and a half deep. Fill it up with worm castings and go away and leave it that way for you. Everybody looks around like, I don't know, something. That sounds cool. Nobody's going to do that for me. It sounds like a lot of worm castings, right? But if you plant daikon radish and all you do is just plant it in your off-season and let it grow in your garden, basically you did that for throwing seed down. That plant's going to get really big. It's going to grow a huge, long taproot. And if you don't harvest it, it eventually is going to die. And it's going to rot in the ground, and worms are going to come eat it. And when worms eat, really quickly thereafter, they poop. It's going to make your, your garden very tillable, but you won't have to till it. It's going to give you that light. And that's just if you don't do anything. For like a dollar's worth of seeds. Now, let's talk about the things you can do with it, though. The only thing this plant really hates is heat, so I wouldn't plant it right now. But another three weeks from now, I would go ahead and plant it in my climate and let it grow through the fall. It grows really fast, like all radishes do. It gets really big. The radish itself is delicious. I don't like radishes, and I like daikon radish, like cherry bell radish and whatever. I actually found a way I like them. They're actually good roasted, believe it or not. They make a reasonable potato substitute for those of you on keto. 
Um, but it's not like I'm in love with them. It's like something I'll do once in a while for the hell of it. But daikon, thin slice, there's a lot of ways to use daikon. I can't even get into it today. But they're also good fermented. But, man, daikon radish done with, like, a julienne. So you get, like, a julienne peeler, and you do that with, like, carrot, and you do that, like, on tacos and stuff like that. It's, it, it's, it's amazing. But my favorite thing to do with it is you let it go until it goes to seed. And when it, so, it, so it flowers, and then it brings in beneficials. Then it goes to seed, it makes these little pods. And they look like little beans or something. And they are amazing. You pick them before they get too big. They have the seed of the radish in them. They have this really mild radish flavor. They're good in salads, but and they're good in soups. But when they're really, you do just a small handful when you do a stir fry. And you throw them in there, and you, you want to do them toward the end. You only want them to turn to that bright green. You don't want them to really cook down. Holy crap. So there's a plant with all these functional components to it. And the seed's cheap, and it's easy to grow, and yeah, it belongs in your backyard. Wild garlic. If I go somewhere in spring, and I see wild garlic, I pull it up and bring it home and plant it somewhere. Or when it gets the little bulblets on it, I'll harvest as many of them as I can get. And I bring them home and I just throw them all over my property. And because of that, I have like five different distinct species of wild garlic growing on my property. I never pull it up here. It, it, I'm sure for all that I've thrown, 90% of it failed to grow. But what grew, grew where it wanted to grow. And I get about a three-week to four-week window. And the more variety I add, the longer that window gets. Because they, they, they flower and they put their little bulblets on at different times of year. But it's early spring to mid-spring. I have wild garlic blossoms all over the place. And those thrown into a salad, I mean, it's this hit of flavor. It looks cool. Where else are you going to get it? And so it's a seasonal thing, that, like our hunter-gatherers would go after. Wild garlic, I, if, I, don't, I can't really think of a place you wouldn't be able to get wild garlics to grow. Next up, um, lamb's quarters. So lamb's quarters, to me, have a lot of utility as well. So I just have this stuff, like, it's naturalized. I haven't planted lamb's quarter on purpose since maybe the second year I was here. It's growing in my garden right now, for Pete's sake. I have two of them that I decided not to kill this year, and I let them grow. I don't really want lamb's quarter, unlike the Hosantle, though, growing up and dropping 100 billion seeds in my garden. Uh, maybe that wouldn't be so bad after all, but I really decided that I don't want that. So I let it grow wild in the places that the ducks can't get to it. And that's what happens. There's places where the ducks can't get to it, where it gets big and it reseeds itself. Most of the rest of it, if I don't forage it, the ducks do. But when I let a couple go in my garden, what I'll do is when they just get really, really big, I cut them down about halfway, and I start pruning them back like a shrub. And they start sending out shoots and sending out shoots. Well, early in the year, when they're little, up to about a foot tall, I just cut the whole plants and I use them as a green. And they're just fantastic. They're del lamb's quarters are delicious. And when they get bigger like that, though, the little fresh shoots, they're okay. They're okay cooked. I just, I'm not big on cooked greens in the summer. And they're, they're kind of mealy for using as a salad green at that point. So unless I'm doing a soup or something where, hey, I can take a few of these and throw them in for the nutrition hit that we get from them, what they are is chicken food. Right now, I go out every day, and I prune off a big bundle of them, and I take them to my baby chickens that are living in a chicken tractor that can't forage right now because they're too little to be safely let out. Either the snake's going to eat them or the cats are going to eat them right now. Um, 
and I and they love that. So now I have a source of chicken feed. I have something for myself to eat, and I have a plant that grows itself. And again, the the uses are seasonal out of it. Lamb's quarter is also a great protein source, just like its cousin Mozantle. If you wait till it's fully grown and you let it get produce seed, I got like a half of a gallon bag of um, lamb's quarter seed off one lamb's quarter one time. And I just wanted to see how much. I just let it go and I watered the shit out of it and I fertilized the shit out of it. And it's actually really easy to harvest. Unlike a lot of seed that you would harvest to use as a grain, I mean it's tiny is the, is the weak side of it. But unlike a lot of there's no chaff to get off. Whatever little chaff is left, you just eat it. It doesn't matter. And all you have to do is wait till it starts to turn black and then cut off the plumes. Hold it over a five-gallon bucket, rub your hand across it. That's all you got to do. And it just pours into the bucket. Um, and we'll not like, you can do the same thing with that. So lamb's quarters, comfrey. Comfrey I don't eat. Now, I know that the government says using it internally is bad. I don't agree with that. I've just never really been big on eating comfrey. I will harvest and eat in salads the, the blossoms. Because much like borage, they have a very cucumber-like flavor. Really good. But mostly, I grow, uh, I grow comfrey because, one, the ducks love it. That's why I have to grow it in a few select places the ducks can't get to. Because otherwise, I used to have, I had, I had, before I got ducks, I had comfrey everywhere. Just growing all over the place. There's none left. They've eaten it to the ground until there was none left. So I grow it in my beds and all now. And I grow it as a medicinal. Comfrey, I've done, if you want to know more about comfrey, just go to the, the site, the survivalpodcast.com and, and search for comfrey. C-O-M-F-R-E-Y. And I have, Always use this as a medicinal. It is one of the best wound healing agents there is. In fact, the only um, warning that comes with comfrey is if you have a deep wound, don't use comfrey on it. It'll cause the top to heal so fast you can heal in an infection, and that's bad. So sh shallow scrapes and abrasions, cuts, it's amazing for it. But what it's really great for is insect bites. I mean, if you live in Texas, you're going to get bit by fire ants. If I'm close enough to where I can get my hands on some comfrey leaf, When I first get bit, and I just I just grab those leaves and just kind of rough them up so that they start to let their moisture out, and they just rub that up and down all over where I've been bit, it won't even break out. If you wait 10 minutes and do it, it will help, but you're still going to break out and have that kind of long-lasting ant bite result or what have you. But if you do it almost instantly, it will either not break out or barely break out. It's, it's, it's an amazing, and there's so many other things that it does. And it, it's a fertility agent. So comfrey is one of the best dynamic accumulators we have. So it actually accumulates mineral and nutrient that other plants have a hard time accumulating and getting. So we can use it and just mulch with comfrey. And it helps other plants grow. It's also very easy to propagate, and a lot of people want it, so we can produce it and sell cuttings, root cuttings. One little tiny root cutting will grow a, a whole new comfrey plant. It's just an amazing plant, and everybody should be growing it, in my opinion. Chives, garlic and onion both. It, I, I don't need to say a lot about them other than they just grow. Like you, you, there's, there's not a lot of work involved, and they're one of those things that can just add that hit of flavor that changes everything. So with keto, one of the things we've started making is a macaroni and cheese substitute using cauliflower rice. So what is cauliflower? Cauliflower rice is just really finely diced cauliflower. And I'm not a cauliflower fan. Cauliflower rice is awesome. My wife made um, a chicken and garlic 
thing with bacon last night. And it was fantastic. And I'm like, as soon as I taste it, I'm like, oh, I'm going to make some cauliflower rice. So I got out a thing of cauliflower rice, lost a little bit of bone stock with it, some uh, ghee, some fresh garlic. And then when it was almost done and cooked down, uh, I chopped up some fresh parsley, threw it in there, mixed it in. And then we put that, oh, it was freaking fantastic. I digress. When we do the cauliflower rice mac and cheese, which is just take whatever mac and cheese recipe you like to make and do it with cauliflower rice. Cook the rice first. Cook some garlic and some flavor into it. Use broth. Strain it so it's not too wet. Do your cheese thing, whatever that is for you. Chop up some bacon. Mix it in with it. Throw it in the oven to you know bake it to what have you. Put some crispy bacon on the top of it. It is amazing. It is amazing. It doesn't really taste like... Mac and cheese. It tastes more like the best cheesy grits you've ever had. And if you don't think you like grits, you haven't had grits made the right way. It's more like that or maybe more like couscous or something. It's, But it's good. But you know what just makes it amazing? When I don't forget that after we've made it and we're about to sit down and eat, I've got a big old steak sitting next to my cauliflower, uh, my cauliflower mac and cheese. Go outside and just chop off some fresh onion chives and chop them up fine and put that on the top of it. It sets it over the top. And all I had to do is walk out about 25 feet from my back deck and there's a big bed full of chives. Do I want garlic tonight or onion? I'm telling you on, the, on, on this, if you do the mac and cheese thing, we call it, you want the onion chives. You want the onion chips. But so much versatility and so easy. And once they start growing, they just keep coming back. The onion chives, these little pink flowers, those are freaking amazing in a salad. You want more chives, you pull up a big clump of chives, you divide it, and you replant them. What more? Nothing eats onions, and you plant them and interplant them, okay, with your other plants that are more prone to pest pressure, and they act as a repellent for some pests, and you let the chives go to flower, and then they bring in the little beneficial wasps that sting and murder your pests, which is such a better way to deal with your pests. Do you know what you do not become immune to? Having your life sucked out of you, having your head cut off and being eaten. All the pesticides, even the organic ones, like the chrysanthemum or whatever that we can do, um, some pests will become immune to it. And some beneficials will get killed by it. But I'm telling you right now that nothing that a, a, lady a ladybug larva eats will become immune to being eaten. So the more we can do to bring those beneficials in, the better. So just so, again, versatile. Next, calendula. Calendula is a medicinal. It attracts beneficials. It's easy to grow, and mine's all dying now because it's hot. It's okay. I don't care. I have like freaking two giant handfuls of seed, and I only collected a little bit of it, and a bunch of it just fell in the garden, and I'm sure it'll decide when it wants to come back, either the fall or the spring. But it's an amazing medicinal. It is a, a great in making salves, along with comfrey for healing. It is awesome. Uh, used with plantain that way, it's awesome. But the flowers taste good. The flowers taste good. You take calendula flower, pull it off, you can throw the whole thing in. I like to just pull the little petals off of them, throw that into a salad. They grow later in the year for me than a lot of the other flowers that are good in the salad. There's something about flowers and salad that sets it off. There really is. And I know, like, I'm the survival guy, and I'm talking about eating flowers, man. 
look, food is food. And there is, there's things that we're looking for from food. One is calories. Your vegetation crops are a limited source of calories. There's some things we can do that are carbohydrate crops, like let's say potatoes. But what we're looking for mostly from most of the vegetation we grow is nutrition. We're looking for vitamins and minerals. And we're looking for bulk and we're looking for fiber. right? But we're also looking for flavor. Flavor is a big thing. Calendula has a flavor that is difficult to describe. But when you put it into a salad and it's mixed with like other bitter greens and stuff like that, it's great. And the whole plant can be used as a pot herb. So it is something you can eat if you need to eat the whole thing. I just eat the flowers. I, I really don't tend to use the, the plant, but it, it's a good pot herb. So calendula. And then it, it produces a ton of seed. So once you have a couple varieties or a variety, you, even just one, that you like of calendula, you'll never, ha like, you'll never have to buy it again. You don't have to worry about separation distances and all kinds of fancy schmancy shit. The flower dries up, and then there's a big seed head, and there's all these little hook-shaped seeds in there. You just grab it off and throw it in a, like a paper. You don't want to. Don't put seed until you know it's fully dry into plastic, like a paper sack, so it can breathe, like a, like an old lunch sack. Just throw a whole bunch of them in there, kind of roll it up loosely, and stick it in your shed. It doesn't need any special treatment. Then you can come in the spring and just throw it wherever you want it. I like stuff that's easy like that. This is, again, this is another plant that while we have now selectively bred for certain colors and characteristics in some instances, it's basically a wild herb. It's a wild pot herb. And so the most basic plain old calendula is pretty much the same plant that it was a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago. Uh, next up today, sweet potato. And my favorite, I've talked about it a lot, is the purple, uh, the purple Japanese sweet potatoes. They have purple skins. And the potato itself is kind of yellow, a light yellow. It's not sweet like your conventional, like your Beauregard orange potato or whatever. The skin is so thin, if you scrub it, you'll scrub the skin off. The tubers are excellent. I don't eat a lot of potato, but, you know, we harvest some every year. And, you know, we have, in the, the, the winter, maybe we'll be doing a pot roast. We'll take one sweet potato and cube it up and throw it in with a pot roast. And then when we have dinner, we'll eat like one or two pieces each of that potato and let it suck that gravy. It's great. If you are not uh, if you're not keto, you do eat potatoes. They are the best potatoes you will ever eat. Make them as twice fried French fries. They will blow your mind. So you fry them till they're done. You take them out. You let them cool till they're like warm, and you throw them back in the oil, and they puff up and get crispy. And if you keep frying them, you don't do the two fry. Like they will never get. You will burn them, and they'll be limp. If you'll take, I don't know what the chemistry involved is. You take them out, you let them cool and put them back in. They puff up beautifully and they taste amazing. Uh, those are fantastic if you take some gochujang, which is a Korean chili paste. And, and believe, I know this is going to sound funky, but mixed with mayonnaise. About 50-50. And you mix that up as a dipping sauce. Holy crap. And I Mayonnaise on a french fry sounds terrible to me. But... Trust me on this, but I grow them for the greens. Sweet potato greens are edible. So I grow sweet potato everywhere I can put a sweet potato slip in. I throw a slip in, and it grows because it spills over the sides. So I don't have to take up garden space unless I want to. So I can just have all my garden beds, all my wicking beds, whatever, throw a couple slips in there, and as it starts growing, just train it over the side. So eventually it grows to the ground. Then the ducks eat it, and it grows back. And then the ducks eat it, and then it grows back. 
And then the ducks eat it. And then it grows back. So I'm feeding my ducks with like a conveyor belt system. Or just eating it. Whenever I want some, I go out and I cut some, strip the leaves off, throw it in as a, as a sautéed green at the end. I have greens all summer long because of sweet potatoes. And then I get potatoes at the end of the year. I just pull, I don't, most places I don't even pick them. I leave them in the ground. I know there's potato, I know where the vine came out is where they are. Usually one vine will have three to four big tubers underneath it. I'll put a big pile of mulch to keep it from freezing down in there. Now, if you're in a winter climate, you may not be able to pull this off. And then, hey, you know what? We're going to do a pot roast today. Let me go get a couple sweet potatoes. I'll go out, pull the mulch back, stick my hand in, and pull out as many as I need. And just leave them out there. Usually a couple will make it through and start sending slips up, and then I have slips for the rest. I will always harvest one because some years I've had to get really cold, and what happens is instead of starting to grow again, they all rot. So I always take a couple so I can make my own slips and, and store them so I can. But I don't ever have to buy them again. I don't ever have to. And once, if you get one growing, within a month, you can have it everywhere. Because once it starts growing, every time you cut from it to produce a slip, it like makes more. It gets mad. And it starts making more and more and more and more. Unless you cut it to the ground. As long as you leave some, it will grow. And it does amazing in aquaponic systems, but be careful in ebb and flow beds because it will totally choke one out. Ask me how I know. But sweet potato. Like, you never run out. You never have to buy it again. Nothing. I've seen a little bit of pest pressure on it, but mostly nothing eats it. I've never seen it get a disease. It's a calorie crop, and it's a nutrition crop. I don't know why everybody doesn't grow it. Celery. I used to hate trying to grow celery. I mean, I hated, 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 hated it. I put all these little celery seeds in, and none of them would freaking germinate. Then I discovered that if I bought celery and just pulled all the outer stalks off and left the core and stuck it in one of my aquaponics beds, that it would grow. And it would grow this really intensely flavored cutting celery. And if I just let it grow, eventually it would get huge. It would get huge seed heads on it, and it would drop so many seeds that a lot of them would just grow back, and I'd end up with a whole bed of baby celery plants. And I could pull them out of the ebb and flow bed, and I could plant them anywhere I want them. And if I just let some go to seed every year, that one plant would produce 100 gazillion seeds. And if only 1% of that grows, 1% of 100 gazillion is a lot. So celery has become something that's it's basically a weed on my property now. It went from hard to grow to a weed. Now, I don't grow those big, pretty bunches like you get in the grocery store. If I need celery like that, I buy it. But for all my sautéing, cooking, soups, stews... The celery I grow, you can't buy. It's It's got so much more flavor, and the leaves are as good as the stalks. And I don't, I, all the celery I'm growing, except for a little bit of the white uh, the white Chinese celery that I grow, most of it's all, I don't, it's probably tango is probably the variety, but it's all from grocery store. It's all from grocery store plants that went to seed and have reseeded and reseeded and reseeded. And that means it's becoming more and more adapted to my property. It's all a little unhappy right now. It doesn't really like the heat either, but it makes it through the heat. Then you just prune off all of the sad parts, and then it just starts growing again. And then usually toward the end of the year, that's when they'll go ahead and send that big uh, stalk up. And once it does that, it doesn't taste very good. But once you get it going and you have it in different stages, you always have some somewhere, and it survives frost and freezes once it hardens off. So that's just a hack. You just take your, your celery cores from the store and plant them. Some people, what they do is they cut the bottom off the celery and they plant that bottom. Don't do that. It will work eventually, but if you just pull the stalks off and leave that little bit of the heart at the end with the, with the whole base intact, it will, it, will, it will 
normalize and start growing well for you so much faster if you do that. How about watercress? You know how I plant water? I've, I've done it with seed, too, but basically I go to the store, and they sell a living plug of watercress, and I stick it in one of my ebb and flow beds, or I stick it in a pot and put it in one of my little garden ponds, and it grows. And I even have some right now. It's not real happy, but all I need to do is keep a little bit of it alive until the winter comes, and all that means is I have a shady spot with it sitting in a pond, and a lot of times it'll produce seed for me, too, but as long as there's one little cutting of that stuff, once the weather's right for it, Put a few little starts out, boom, watercress for six months out of the year. Great tasting plant. It's it's a member of the nasturtium family. In fact, uh, it is a nasturtium species. It has that bitey, that peppery thing going on. Uh, it's just a really versatile plant. And I don't I don't do anything. I don't do any real work except me. I'll take a pinch here and a pinch there and stick it here. And it all started from a grocery store. Uh, Swiss chard. That's a uh, now that's a plant I do kind of start new plants all the time from seed, um, but you get about a year and a half before it goes to seed and kind of is no longer valid. It doesn't you know once it sends that stock up, it's really not very nice to eat anymore. But you get two yields from it. You get the leaf as it, it can be either sautéed or used raw. The baby leaf's great in salads, and you get that big beautiful stock that you can chop up and cook. And I, you know, right now I do have some Swiss chard getting eaten by some pests, but I have giant, uh, giant, they're little, but they're big for a jumping spider species. They look like little mini tarantulas, love to live in it. So the pests come and then the spiders eat the pests. And it, I grow so much of it. If one gets hammered, I don't care. And it gets through my summers, it, and it lives through my summers, and it lives through my winters. I, and beets. Beets, same type of... Swiss chard and beets are in the same family. Here's my hack for beets. Go to the supermarket, especially the little golden beets, and buy a baby beet. Like a little bunch of baby beets. Organic's better because you know they haven't been treated with anything. You want the ones that have the top still on them. Bring them home. Don't do it this time of year. Do it once it cools off. Take the little beet and go plant it in your garden. Just plant the whole thing. Just dig a hole, stick it in there. If you got uh, aquaponics bed, uh, ebb and flow bed, it's even better. Stick a little bit in there. It'll start growing. When it gets nice big greens on it again and nice, fresh, happy greens, because your greens will be sad, kind of prune them off, leave a little bit, and you start harvesting greens from it. Just don't cut it all the way down. Take, you know, put five or six of them in there and take a couple leaves off each one when you take your beet greens. Use them in salads, use them in soups, use them in sautés, whatever. And eventually, they'll start to really grow fast, let them, and then pull it out, and then the little beet you bought and paid the price for a little beet for it will now be a great, big, beautiful golden beet. And if you've never tried golden beets, try golden beets. I'm not big on the red beets and all the red juice and all. Golden beets are delicious. And basically, I'm paying for a little one, getting free greens for about three months, and ending up with a big beet that would cost me a lot more money. Really, really simple. And if you start your own from seed, you, you, you can let one or two go to seed and be very self-sufficient on that. I just think that they're pretty cheap to buy in the grocery store, and they grow really, really easily for you that way. Um, next, uh, Asian eggplants. Asian eggplant is one of my favorite things to grow. I used to hate eggplant. I used to have what I called the government. I called the government eggplant theory. That I said I hated eggplant. The government made me eat it. They took my money, bought eggplant with it, and made me eat it. Then I discovered Asian eggplants. Asian eggplants are amazing 
Ichiban has become my favorite Asian eggplant. Super easy to grow. No real pest pressure. You got to keep them watered. That's what I learned this year. Like they are, they are a bit sensitive to water, but they even thrive on heat. And easy to easy to easy to use, right? You pick them off, chop them up, sauté them. Pick them up, slice Asian eggplant, right? The the long oblong ones. Cut the end off, slice it down the middle, brush it with garlic oil, and throw it on the grill. It'll blow you away. How good it is. How simple it is. It's got this sweet flavor. The big eggplants need to be sweated with salt to pull some stuff out of them, or they taste like a freaking ashtray. There's an alkalinity to them. It's just nasty. The Asian varieties, like I'm talking about, don't have that. Easy to grow. Sugar baby watermelon. Grew some of that this year. Should have grown more. They produce a watermelon about like a, a little bit bigger than a softball, most of them. They're the pretty thick rind, so when you cut them open, they're not a big serving. I'm keto. I don't want to eat too much watermelon. It's all sugar. But it's a nice little treat in the summer. They fit in a refrigerator beautifully. The kids like them. They just grow. They don't give a shit. Right? And I found they grow in some places and not in others. Guess what that means? That's where they get planted. And they're a pretty quick producer, too. I would say they're about, from seed, they're about like 80 days. So some of you could still grow. So I'm, I planted, I harvested one. The kids ate it. I took the seeds and put it right back where it was growing before. And that they're all, you know, there was like three days ago, and already have like little baby, little baby watermelon plants growing back up. So definitely sugar baby watermelon. I'm sure all watermelon is actually pretty easy to grow. But what I like about the sugar babies is we do get some disease pressure on on, on watermelon here in Texas, and the sugar baby doesn't have to get that big. So it, it produces so quickly that even if the plant succumbs to disease, you don't care because you already got a yield off of it. So again, I quit doing things that didn't work. I quit growing great big giant watermelons because I didn't want to fight the problems with it. Also, a bigger watermelon is going to require a lot more irrigation because a watermelon is like mostly water. So they suck up a lot of water, right? So there you go. Uh, nasturtiums. Love growing nasturtiums. I can only grow those about two months out of the year. So guess what? That's when I grow them. Flowers and greens are fantastic. The greens, I grow this nasturtium variety. The, the green round part of the leaf is like the size of like a teacup dish. Like, you know, like the little plate that goes under a teacup, the little saucer. They're huge. And you could take two of them and put them together and use them like a spring roll. And they have an amazing flavor compared to a spring roll. I did, for one of my buddies, I did sautéed snails. If you don't like snails, you can do substitute something else. Shrimp would be great in this. But I took snails, and I love snails. you got to give it a try before you write it off. So I just got a can of the, the escargot-style snails, and I cooked it outside. So my wife went and yelled about the smell, drained off the liquid, threw it in a pan. They're already cooked because they're canned. Sautéed them just until they were warm with garlic and shallots, and then took that, put three of the nasturtium leaves together because they need to be a little more robust. Put like two snails inside there. Laid down a, uh, a couple sh uh, sh uh, pieces of uh, chive. Rolled that up. And it, he said it was one of the best things he ever ate in his life. I mean, it was that good. And it's just, where would you buy that? And so some of you like that live in the Northeast, you can grow those things. You plant them in the spring. They'll grow right through until September. For me, once that heat comes, they you can tell they're going away. So what do I do when they go away? I cut them off, chop them up, throw them in the bag. Real simple. My 
one thing with those, they're one of the few things here that I'm not self-sufficient with. I have to buy seed. Because I don't, they don't ever make it to a point where they produce seed for me, not yet anyway. Groundnut, love groundnut. I'm talking about Apius Americano. Uh, it is a native species to the northeastern United States. I have a variety from LSU called Nutty Groundnut. They get about as big as a small potato. They have a lot of inulin in them. They are a low glycemic index. They are a tuber I can eat, and they are delicious. They taste like a cross between potato and water chestnut. They're okay roasted. I have found I like them best raw and sliced thin in, like, salads. They're just fantastic, um, really easy to grow. They have one requirement, moisture. they got to stay moist. They do not have deep roots. They grow really shallow, like in an inch of soil. When you go to pull them out, it's easy to find them. You stick your hand, you feel one, you pull it, and they grow like a necklace. You'll pull one out, and if it's loose enough soil, like 10 will come out, and there'll be a little string root connecting them all together. And they're like, you have the biggest one, and then they get smaller, 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 smaller. Take all your little ones, put them back in. Once you, it takes about two years to get them built up in a bed to where you can really start harvesting sustainably. But once you do that, you just harvest them any time of year, whether they're growing and active or not. You can go out in the winter, dig around, oh, there's one, there's one, there's one, okay, that's enough. Peel them, slice them up, use them. Uh, you know, use them again, kind of like a water chestnut is, is the best way to use them. Uh, but you can look up all the nutrition information on them. They're fantastic. And then I've got combined autumn olive or gumi. Autumn olive, I have it everywhere. It's incredibly delicious. It's just they're really small berries. But it makes fantastic meat. It makes a fantastic jelly. And they taste great to just eat as long as you wait till they're fully ripe. Because if they're not fully ripe, they're astringent. You might want to get a better bang for your buck, especially in small backyards, and purchase a variety of plant called a gumi. Gumi is a... Uh, Eliagnus species like autumn olive, they get a lot bigger. They get about the size of a small grape. And what they need is moisture and sun. They don't need to be beaten by sun. They're an edge species. But I lost mine because they weren't getting enough irrigation uh, where I had them, and they weren't getting enough sun. But they are absolutely delicious. And as long as you can get enough irrigation to them, and the best, the best scenario would be about... Four to six hours of morning sun and then go into shadow. So if you have like a structure where you can plant on the east side of that structure and get them late day shade, they will just do phenomenal for you. They're a bit expensive, but once they're established, they keep spreading and keep growing and they just keep making more and more and more. Uh, next up today, blackberry. This is a great one. If you have wild blackberry to forage, go do that. But blackberry... It's another one of those plants. It needs irrigation. But most people's backyards have irrigation anyway of some form or another. Like, if it gets too dry, it will die. Otherwise, it is about as tough as it gets. I mean, it's a plant that just grows in the woods, right? Again, it's another edge species. It loves eastern sun, western shade. That's its favorite thing it will ever have. I like the primocane varieties of blackberry. Um... The, the Most blackberries are what's called floricane or second-year cane. So they require a lot of attention to pruning to get the most out of them. And what floricane second-year means, so the cane grows the first year, and then it doesn't produce anything. And then the second year, that cane will flower and produce fruit early in the season. The canes that produced fruit the year before will now be dead and need to be pruned out. All right, They'll have to be pruned out the fall before this happens. And it will grow new growth 
And what you want to do is after you produce your berries, you prune out all of those canes that produce berries in the spring. And you let your new growth take over. That's how you manage blackberries, raspberries, most berries like this. With the primocane, they will produce fruit on the first and the second year. So it gives you options. One, you can get two harvests a year. Or two, you can just print them flat to the ground once a year. And they'll produce a late crop instead of an early crop for you. Either way. But they're awesome. All the varieties that I know that are the, the, the primocane, they're like prime gem, prime arc, prime something else, um, are patented. So you're not supposed to reproduce them. No, there's no way to not reproduce a blackberry. It's stupid. Blackberries reproduce themselves. So you can make as many as you want. Nobody's the, the, the blackberry police are not going to come to your house. If you start selling prime gym blackberries without paying the patent fee and you call them that, I'm sure eventually you might have a problem for a patent violation. If you were selling them and you were just calling them blackberries, I don't think that anybody would either care either. Just saying. Uh, goji berry, also known as wolfberry, this is a new, like just an amazing nutraceutical. These plants are so amazing. I thought they all died on me when I first planted them the first year. They grew like crazy. They produced berries. And that was the spring. And the summer came, and they all just like withered and turned brown, and they were just dead. And I almost cut it all out, and I was like, I'll get to it later. And then late August, all these little green leaves started showing up, and then they produced a second crop. They basically just go dormant in the winter and the summer, and they produce two crops in the spring and the fall. The berries are okay. They're much better dried. If you've ever had dry goji, it has a real sweet flavor to it. When they're fresh, they don't. I guess when they dry, the sugars concentrate. But there's something you can eat a little handful of, and you just gave yourself a shot of nutrition. They're also fantastic in tea. So you, you just take a handful of them, and whatever tea you're making, you just throw that in there, and you let them kind of sit and steep in that hot water. Then you get a great tea, and at the end of that cup of tea, you just eat the berries. Uh, but what I love about them, I thought they were weak sauce, because you'd buy one, and it would come in the mail, and it would look like somebody stepped on it, and you'd plant it, and it would die. And I guess they just don't travel well. But eventually, if you if you limp one through and keep, get, it, get it to live... Once they live, they are indestructible. You can cut it to ground, and it will grow back like a weed. The, the way that it even got to this country is Chinese workers who worked for the railroad, like out in Utah, when they were building the railroad crossing the country, brought them with them from China, and they were eating them and taking a dump in the desert. And years later, like one of the most popular varieties came from that, from Chinese guys taking a dump in the desert. And they live in the desert of Utah. So they will live in your, on your property. And they, it, like I said, it's one of those plants you can look up. But the leaf actually makes a good tea as well. And the leaf can be fermented to make a black tea. By the way, the blackberry leaf, you can do the same thing with that. So those are two plants that you can also make tea with. And you can look up how to, how to ferment uh, black tea out of blackberry uh, leaf or goji berry online if you if you want to do that. But people have gotten on to me with that one and said, but you fool, goji berry is a nightshade. If you, if you eat or consume or extract from the greens, you'll die. It is a nightshade, and no, you won't. Tomatoes are nightshade. Did you know you can eat tomato greens? You can. I covered it before. They're actually making a uh, kind of like a pesto out of it, like chefs are. You, you doubt me? Just look it up. I wouldn't lie to you. Uh, goji berry is a nightshade, some nightshades. Um, you can eat part, but not all of. Some nightshades you can eat all of, and some nightshades you can't eat any of. Peppers are a nightshade. 
Uh, as far as I know, pepper leaf is bad news. You do not want to eat the leaf of a pepper plant. Um, tomato, I always thought, I always thought, I was always told tomatoes are safe. Tomato leaf is bad. Apparently not. Now there may be, I don't know if like the potato leaf variety of tomato may not be so much because I know potato green, not good. No bueno. But your average tomato plant, you can eat the leaf. Look it up if you doubt me. Uh, goji berry, you can use the, the leaves that way as well. Dwarf mulberry. Dwarf, dwarf mulberry is, it, I, I'm saving the propagation thing because it do the same thing as goji berry. But dwarf, dwarf mulberry, uh, mulba, mora alba isai, is basically a mulberry bush. You know, round and round the mulberry bush, the monkey chase the weasel. That's this plant. And it can grow almost like a big tree or you can prune it and keep it small. And it, it's an ever-bearing mulberry, meaning it produces multiple crops a year. My buddy David grows them in like half of IBCs, wicking beds, in his backyard. And gets a ton every year. Uh, they're, they're kind of like, you know, mulberry's kind of like blackberry. These are big. I mean, they're like thumb size. And big, fat, round ones. They're not like the long Pakistani ones. They are good to make like a simple syrup out of for making mixed drinks. They are good for making... Uh, mead. They make an incredible mead. I did a mulberry vanilla mead that was freaking fantastic. They're good to eat out of hand. They're mulberries. The reason I really like the uh, the goji and the dwarf mulberry, though, is both of them are very easy to propagate. You take a green stem, like so a softwood cutting off of a tip, so you want something that's, like, you can bend it, and if you bend it, it kind of snaps, but it's still green. You cut that, you put it in moist soil, you put it in the shade, and you wait two weeks, and you have a rooted plant. No, there's nothing else to it. You don't need intermittent mist. You don't need any special voodoo. You don't need any rooting hormone. You don't need willow tips. That's it. Both of them. As long as you start with a, so a good softwood, and you keep it in the shade, and you keep it moist, it will root. I've had go uh, gojis. I've had good roots on them in three days. They're insane when you do them at the right time of year. And again, you want that good green stem. Uh, the, the, the mulberry, it takes about two weeks to get a really good root system on them. Once you, but you, like, so once you have one, if you want 20, it ain't a problem. And I love being self-sufficient with this. Red amaranth, and really any amaranth, but I like to grow red amaranth. Uh, I'll buy it by like the pound of seed. And then you just kind of sprinkle it into beds. And when it grows, when it gets up to about a foot tall, it's just a perfect, actually more like eight inches is a perfect side bra uh, for a, like a braising green. It's just delicious, and it, it just sets off salads. And it's another one of those plants. I grow it in the spring, and I grow it in the fall. And I just don't grow it in the heat of the summer, and I don't try to grow it in the winter when the frost will kill it. Um, no more to say about that. Sunflower. I love to grow sunflower. I grow it mostly for the ducks. And the kind of sunflower I grow now, I grow black oil sunflower. My wife buys it for bird seed. Uh, in the spring, when I get a good rain, I'll walk through the berms, and I just throw it. And whatever they don't find grows. And then when it gets big, I just cut the heads off and throw them the heads, and they eat all the seeds out of it. Or we'll hang one up out by the bird feeders and watch the little birds come and hang upside down by their ass and pick the seeds out. Um, there is a value to that plant, though, that gets missed. It's such an inexpensive seed that we maybe we don't think about the value of it in hard times. Sprouted sunflower is delicious. Sunflower microgreens are delicious. And we could do a microgreen. We just do a sunflower sprouts. You know, a jar with a, with a piece. You take a, a ball jar. You put a handful of sunflower seeds in it. You fill it up with water halfway, and you let them soak overnight. 
Okay? The next day, you take a piece of screen, like screen door screen, you put it over the lid and you put the, the ball jar ring on. So the water, what you see, it's like a, the water will come out. You turn it upside down and you dump the water out. You fill it up, shake it to give it a good rinse, and leave it upside down sitting at the side of the sink. Like your little thing at the side of the sink, you put cups and jars in to dry. You just set it upside down like that and water drains back in the sink and it sits there. And you just keep doing that until you have sprouts. And then you separate your shells and you have sunflower sprouts. Well, you can grow a shitload of these. They're an incredibly resilient plant. So you can have, and, and sunflower sprouts are a good source of fat and protein. Good source of fat and protein. They're actually, black oil sunflower is a very high fat microgreen. It's, it's hard to grow your own fat. Don't overlook the value of, you know, a 50-pound sack of black oil sunflower. The black oil sunflower that you would feed your birds that it says not for human consumption, you can totally eat it. You can grow your microgreens with it. You can do anything you want with them. There ain't not, they don't spray them with anything that's uh, dangerous to humans or anything like that. They very rarely spray anything on black oil sunflower because it doesn't really have a lot of pest problems. It's generally grown as an intermediate crop in between main crops. There, there are not actually many farmers who grow it as its own thing. So that they do it in a rotation. It's something that helps restore and remediate fields. It produces a lot of, uh, of organic matter. So they can harvest the, the seed. They can get something for it. And they can basically shred the plant back to the field and, and improve their fields. It's, so it's grown. A lot of it's actually grown in organic operations. But it's not sold as organic seed because you can. there's only so much of a market for it. So a lot of conventional black oil seed is actually grown by, by um, organic operations because they can only command full price for so much of it and they got to get rid of it. The last one is Jerusalem artichoke. Jerusalem artichoke is like the ultimate survival crop. The first time I ever grew it, this is just an example of what it will do. I had about a 10-foot-long bed, about 3-foot wide. So he said, hey, I'll send you some. So he sent me like two Jerusalem artichokes. They were always starting to sprout, and I was like, they'll, they'll be fine, just plant them. So I cut them into four pieces each. So I put eight pieces in a 10-foot bed. I got four full five-gallon buckets of tubers out of that bed that season. Um, they're fantastic. They're really good fermented. And if you do a lacto-ferment on them, um, they don't cause a lot of the uh, gastric distress there's a nickname for them called fartichokes because they also have a lot of inulin. And the way that breaks down in your lower intestine, it can make a lot of gas. I will say this about them. If I was to have to be around somebody farting a lot, I would prefer that it be from them than from about anything else. They're, they're loud but not deadly, right? Instead of silent but deadly, they're the opposite. They, they're, they're high-powered, low-octane. Um, but when you ferment them... You really don't get that reaction. The other thing I've found with them is if you get like a uh, like a box cheese grater, you know, it has that one for like it's almost like a mandolin. It does really thin slices. If you slice them like that and put them on a salad, they're really good. And if you use a small amount, they bring a lot of like uniqueness and crispness to the salad, and you don't get that reaction either. It's when you eat a bunch of them. So if you fry them like potatoes or whatever, that's when, yeah, you can, I'll just leave it at that. But, God, what a survival crop. Nothing, nothing bothers them. You know, they grow like crazy. They're, once you have them, 
The only thing I will tell you about them, people think like you'll have them forever. If you don't harvest them, they will grow themselves to death sometimes. They will choke themselves out. They will produce too many and they, they will stop growing. So you need to harvest them. And if you get them going in a place that you don't want them, they're really easy to get rid of. If you are strategic about timing, all you do is wait till they get about a foot tall and pull them out of the ground. That's it. If you pull them out when they're really little, what will happen is you won't get the tuber. A piece of it will stay and it will grow back and it will multiply. If you wait till they get too big, they're hard to get out of the ground. If you wait till they're about a foot tall, they'll come right out. And when the tuber comes with it, you'll notice the tuber's hollow. And it's done. It took all the energy from the tuber to grow that foot. So whatever you've left is no longer valid. And I've had no problems with them spreading to places I don't want them. So that's it. That's 24 honey badger crops for your backyard hunter-gatherer system. Um, my final thoughts on this. I really do think this is a better way to do this, just like from my intro song. There's a better way to do this. I have no problem with the small-scale farm layout like my grandfather did. And if you live in a place like rural Pennsylvania with gorgeous soils and mild summers and all, maybe that's what you want to do. I think for most people with small yards that don't want to like have to keep and maintain things in a really rigid way, figuring out what grows where and growing as much stuff as you can that doesn't give a shit, and then you can take and give some love to the tomatoes, right? You can give some love to those more finicky crops, right? You can give some love to your peppers. But how much do you really need of that when you have all of this going along with it? Because if you think about it today, I just give you 24 plants that really require almost no work. And with only a couple exceptions, you're com once you get them established, you're completely self-sufficient. You never need to go back to the well ever again. You never need to buy seed again. You never need to buy plants again. And that is the essence of what we're trying to do with self-sufficiency and self-reliance. So with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you, if you want to help support the show, The way you can do that, the easiest way that doesn't really cost you anything, is just do your online uh, shopping through tspaz.com. No matter what you buy, if you start at tspaz.com, you'll help us out. Uh, today's item of the day for you, I haven't brought these around in a while. They are back in stock, and they're at fair pricing, and you can get them, and they're delivering in a couple days. The Barina Indoor LED Grow Lights in six-packs. They come in four-foot lights and two-foot lights. These are an amazing value. I would say three years ago, To buy one light, like comes in these six-pack, one light would have been 50 bucks for a four-footer. Now you can get four four-footers, or six four-footers for 110 bucks. They are the best grow lights I've ever used Infinity. They're great for your indoor hydroponics. They're great for starting plants. Hey, we just talked about growing all this stuff. You got to get a start somewhere. I know it's like summer. This is when everything grows outside, but it isn't. Right now, we do hydroponics to grow our lettuces and our arugula and stuff like that because it's so damn hot outside. It's also a great time to be starting plants for the fall garden or to just get off your butt and get on that hydroponic project that you've been wanting to do. Again, they're in stock. They're available. They're awesome. Barina, B-A-R-R-I-N-A. -R -R Until I find something better and I have it this year, they're what I'm going to be using every time I need another grow light. It's where I'll go back to the well for They've been a fantastic company to work with. I had one time I got one light that didn't work. They just said, don't worry about it. We'll send you a new one. There was a little bit of Chinglish translation issues, but, man, these are the best bang for the buck in grow lights I've ever found, Barina LED grow lights. With that, let's do our song of the day today. Um, 
George Thorogood week. We're coming to an end of it. We will do Bad to the Bone tomorrow, I promise. But George Thorogood and the Destroyers have such this good, amazing, twangy blues thing going on. I wanted to play you a song that really brought that out. And so the one that I that I have for you today is called The Sky is Crying. And I think a lot of people have done versions of this song. I think they've done probably the best version, in my opinion. I know when Stevie Ray Vaughan's done a version of a song to say that there's a better one is sacrilegious. I like George Thorogood's better, so sue me if you don't like it. Most people don't know where this song actually came from, though. This is not from Stevie Ray Vaughan originally. It's not like Thorogood covered Vaughan or the other way around. This song's from all the way back March of 1960, and it's by a cat named Elmore James. And it was originally an impromptu song inspired by a downpour in Chicago during a recording session that James came up with this. And then it's been made... It's not only been covered a lot, but different people have added to it, added words to it, added lines to it, uh, done some change-ups with it, and, and what have you. I mean, and a lot of people have done this. It, uh, Albert King did it. Stevie Ray Vaughan did it. Uh, Luther Allison did it. Uh, George Thorogood did it. Allman Brothers uh, actually did a version of this song. And I, and I think there's probably a lot more... Uh, people, B.B. Uh, Coleman did it. It's, it's, it, there's a reason too. It's just a cool song. And with that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
crying. Look at the tears roll down. 